Hi, I'm Kirk Haynes, and welcome to Chicago Crystal. Hi, Kirk. Welcome to Chicago Crystal. I am super excited to have you on. Uh, I have been, uh, I have definitely run into at least your blog posts in the uh, in the Ruby community, and I think it's super interesting that you're getting into Crystal. Um, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm super glad you're here. It's it's been uh, it's been exciting to see some people from the Ruby community uh, discover Crystal. We have a lot of Rubyists, and um, I'm sure that we'll talk about it a little bit. But I'm really curious how you found Crystal. Um, just to kind of kick it off though, uh, how'd you get into programming? How'd you discover this space and <laughs> get into so, all of so this? How'd I get into programming? So when I was 11 years old, um, local community college where, um, I grew up, um, during the summertime, they offered various sorts of enrichment type classes and stuff for, for kids. And one of the classes that they offered, <clears throat> excuse me. One of the classes that they offered was a introduction to computers and programming and stuff like that um, using the VAX VMS cluster that they had just gotten. Oh, um, no way. <laughs> yeah. So this, this was like night, you know, the summer of 1982. Um, and, um, you know, I remember just, you know, loving it, you know, printing out all kinds of, of documentation and going home and, you know, reading it. And so um, shortly after that, my parents splurged and um, bought an Apple II Plus. Oh, um, wow. Ostensibly, it was a family computer, but really it was <laughs> my very, 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 very expensive toy. Um, <laughs> you know, when you look at it, yeah, computers then cost what they cost now, but yeah. dollars then were a lot smaller. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And now, was that hypercard time? Um so you know, that was it was before hypercard i think oh, okay i mean you know that was you know it was 48k um and you know applesoft basic and 6502 assembly and um oh wow i i i was an expert on that machine i mean you know i i knew knew everything about it um and that's how i got started was an Apple II Plus that I was a guru with. Um, and then it, it grew from there. I went to uh, college at the University of Wyoming and um, studied computer science, but didn't graduate with a degree in computer science. However, I um, got a job there working for one of the, the offices on campus, doing basically all of their general computer stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they had an IBM RS 6000 um, system that they ran um, some database stuff on. It was it was Office of Environmental Health and Safety. And so they had to track um, hazardous chemical inventories and radioactive waste inventories and things like that for the university. And so um, I wrote, I think the database was FilePro, actually. But I wrote some FilePro applications to calculate radioactive decay rates and stuff like that so they could figure out when things were safe to dispose of and i got into linux around then like 1992 um wow so it was a very yeah yeah it was a very very early linux um 
And um, then it just, it grew from there by like 94, 95. Um, I got tired of being poor and discovered that I had the skills to go get hired. And um, <laughs> so moved to Denver and away we oh. went. <laughs> okay. And so, um, you know, looking through some of your bio, you're, you're from Wyoming and yep. just for people who, I mean, I don't know where in Denver you moved, but, uh, for those, uh, who are not as familiar with the geography of America, Wyoming is just North of Denver, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, oh. I, I, it, it's the least populated state. There's nobody here. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, I North of Denver, you know, the, the town with the university in Wyoming is about two hours North of Denver. So yeah. Okay. And, uh, so you moved to Denver and, uh, you have, um, you know, definitely some assembly knowledge, uh, from the Apple two plus, and then you, um, you know, done some database work. So real application work, some like, uh, you know, detecting or, or uh, calculating decay. And, yeah. uh, you also are kind of on the, what I would call the bleeding edge of, of Linux and, and that revolution. Oh, yeah. So when you oh, yeah. moved to Denver, you know, what were you doing and, and um, how did that kind of play so, into getting so in the I, industry? I, I got a job um, as on a technical support help desk desk for um, US West, um, who was the Baby Bell company, the phone company oh, at the time. Um, yeah, and so the the division of US West, where all of the engineers worked, all of the folks that designed all of the the phone systems, um, they the entire engineering force did all of their work on um, Sun Spark stations. Oh, and man, no way. <laughs> so internally, um, they had a technical support help desk just to support all of those those Sun systems on engineers' desks and, and um, the whole engineering department then. And so I hired on, you know, as a Tier 2 technical support person um, for them and did that for... Oh, eight months, something like that. And then transitioned, it was a contract position, transitioned mm -hmm. from there to a full-time employee for us West doing systems administration. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, that seems to kind of fit in with a, with the previous experience you had. I mean, going from, you know, that's a good path. Uh, yeah. how, how did you, like, how did you like working? I am fascinated with telecoms. I was not in the industry when like, you know, before the, you know, the, the, uh, dot com bubble, but also just like in the expansion of all that stuff. But I love learning about it and I love kind of um, talking to people about the, I mean, this is the baby bells is maybe not the origin of the internet, but are, I mean, is this an era where people are kind of coming oh, yeah. online and you're, you're breaking those hundred thousand million kind of people with email and all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. You know, when, when I was started there, you know, that was right after um, the first, uh, first real real web browser came out and the internet was oh, really no starting to become more than just like gopher and um you know tell, <laughs> yeah. you, you could you could tell net and ftp to various places you know i've been involved with um some internet bbs's um since like yeah late 89 90 that you know you'd tell net to them you know yep. so so that was that was like the original internet social network was internet BBSs that you would tell net to. Um, and so then when I started at us West, you know, things had evolved some, we had websites and, you know, 
NCSA Mosaic, you know, that, that, that early, early, early browser. Um, and, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, working for a company like that, um, they had lots of money. And so mm-hmm. there were lots of very expensive toys. You know, <laughs> the server yeah. room was just full of, of hardware. And, you know, every, every engineer had, had a, a spark station on their desk. Um, and so it was, it was a lot of, um, it, was, it was a really useful learning experience because there was exposure to a whole bunch of things, um, a lot of different software, you know, a lot of different low-level operating system type stuff that you had to deal with. Yeah, um, yeah. It was really, a, a, I think, a, a great sort of introduction to the industry because um, there was a lot of stuff to learn from. Yeah, I bet. I, I, you know, this is kind of interesting, but you're talking about working for what was a, a you know, prestigious company, um, you know, Baby Bell at the time. And they had um, things that people didn't really have access to. I mean, spark stations were, I believe, uh, normally commercially available, but they're, they were expensive. And there's yeah, a were. lot of, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just from reading about it, they seemed expensive. And also, there's a, a ton of uh, telecommunications equipment that people normally couldn't have access to. You, you didn't have access to some of these more advanced, um, you know, kind of pieces of computing machinery. And now as an engineer, most of the things that I work on are, are very readily commercially available. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work on MacBooks. I own, you know... Uh, I, I have, I'm, you know, running this off of a PC that I built that's running Linux. And like, there's a, a lot of this is, is very commercially available. If you want to set up a home lab, I feel like that's very accessible. I mean, you can get more into expensive components and things like that. But with virtualization and the way that everyone's going these days, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, back in, like, I, I'd be interested if there's, if what companies are out there that like, I mean, there are expensive kind of pieces of computing machinery out there. But it's uh, so much of this industry has become um, the the things that we work on are are very accessible now. Yeah, they're they're commodities now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was a radical idea back then to to think about um, doing that kind of computation, that kind of work on commodity systems. I mean, you know, back even back then um, at home, I I ran a Linux system and. Um, at one point in time, I seriously considered trying to start an ISP um, running off of Linux systems. Yeah, um, you know, but but that was kind of a a radical, risky idea. You know, people <laughs> did not see you know you're going to run on a PC with Linux when you know why aren't you going to run on on Solaris? You know, why aren't you going to yeah. run on Sun? Um, and even like database stuff, you know. Um, oh M- man, MSQL was a database um, product that preceded MySQL. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when MySQL first came out, MySQL was, was um, a lot like MSQL. You know, they were, they were related products. Um, and it was a very, very simple database system, but it worked for a lot of, you know, your basic needs. And, Back then, Oracle was, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the database space. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, even as you got into the the later 90s, when MySQL is getting a little bit more established, you know, if, if you were doing business, 
it was still seen as kind of um, risky to to be looking at using MySQL instead of Oracle. Yeah, man, how, how things have moved in the computer industry. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. It's so amazing. I think database technology is something that um, I've been. I've started a few database books about like you know database engines or things like that, and I've, I haven't finished them because I have a, a lot of other priorities. But it is probably one of the it's it's one of the pillars that has kind of moved the computing industry forward and it is just amazing how much data we store now and even just relational databases and i mean the really interesting things that are going on i mean we we see just advancement after advancement and i don't know it just enables so much i love the idea of cockroach db and i've been playing with it a little bit just uh, with the concerns I've seen in a few companies I've worked for with regulations and scale and distribution, or like distributed systems and stuff. I, I find it fascinating. I mean, I can't recommend it because I've only used it as, as a, like, you know, in, in example projects and stuff like that. But it's really cool. Have, yeah, you, not, have you heard of that? I, I'm not familiar with CockroachDB, no. It's uh, wire compatible with Postgres, and it's built by some uh, ex-Googlers that try to take uh, kind of Postgres concepts and make them like geo um, location aware, so you can like kind of pin data oh. to certain regions, like the EU or something like uh-huh. that. And then it has some really uh, advanced features just with uh, querying and uh, you know replication, and just uh, it's it's ex- it seems extremely quick and interesting, and it's kind of cloud native. It's it's a uh, Kind of Postgres for Kubernetes and cloud native and oh, interesting kind of stuff. Yeah, databases are fascinating. <laughs> oh, yeah, but uh, yeah. So, uh, how did you get from the baby bell to uh, kind of where you are now into so, Crystal? Yeah. So, well, so you know, it was funny because even though I was working as a systems administrator, um, you know, at at my core, I was really a programmer. You know, and um. So while I was working for US West, I also wrote various software systems that that we used internally. Actually, the the neatest project that, that I think I did that um, went absolutely nowhere um, was <laughs> right after Java 1.0 came out. Um, you know, I was all over Java. Java was was a fascinating thing, and I yeah. had this this heretical idea: what if you could take um, HTML forms and you could implement them with Java UI components. Um, But then what if you also were able to wire up those Java UI components to the CGI protocol in a way that not only could you make a CGI request, um, but that the data that was returned from the server could alter your components, you know, could alter what was was on your screen without a page reload. Basically, so what I did is I wrote a, a whole Java um, uh, applet that could take and take an HTML form and render it using Java UI components in your web oh, server. <clears throat> but then it had bi-directional communication with your, with your server. So it wasn't JavaScript, it was Java. But basically, yeah. I invented, you know, the 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 whole the whole way that web applications work right now. Um, <laughs> I, I did it with Java 1.0 um, as a toy, and then didn't do anything with it, and it, you know, 
nothing happened with it. It was like, oh, this is really cool. I wrote a few applications. It was really cool. You could click on things and stuff would just change on your screen and, you know, no page reloads or anything like that. And little did I know that that's the direction the internet was going to go some years <laughs> later. Or yeah. maybe you knew. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, what, what happened is that I was working for us West um, yeah. for a while. And then um, I, through the grapevine found out about uh, a small company in Denver that was, was hiring developers. And um, I applied as a software developer and got hired and um, started doing uh, Perl. And I had been, I had already been writing a lot of stuff in Perl. I had been learning Perl for a while. So I started doing Perl professionally, though, um, at that point in time. And yeah. um, I did Perl for a number of years uh, for a few different companies, both uh, in the Denver area and um, a startup in San Jose. Okay. And, um, you know, it was actually, I was 2000 and. I think it was 2001. It was, it was right around the time of Ruby 166. Um, I, read oh, man. About, I read about <laughs> Ruby in a Pearl magazine, of all things. And oh, um, it, I thought, wow, this looks like a better Pearl than Pearl. And so I, I, what I did is I took a whole bunch of my Pearl code and I rewrote it in Ruby. And I just compared them side by side. It's just like, how, how, do, how do they look? How do they function? How does this feel? And by and large, it was it was an experience where my my Ruby code, in almost all cases, was both shorter and more readable than my Perl code. Um, and I was sold. It's like, okay, I'm going to start writing Ruby now. Yeah, I mean, both of those shorter and more readable. Man, Ruby crush it compared to to Perl in that uh, they still inherited a lot of the Perlisms too. So oh, yeah. if, if you wanted to dip down like dip down into some of the uh the constants for example or things like that like i mean they really they really carry over a lot too yeah there were there's a ton of pearlisms yeah and you know those have slowly been weeded out or or deprecated even if they aren't actually gone from the language but yeah. you know back in those days um especially the pearlisms were still in heavy use this is kind of an interesting topic because I have read a lot about the dominance of Java and uh, C++. And if you look at kind of the charts of languages, you don't really see Perl like kind of, you know, consistently like it, I don't even think it, it broke the top five in some cases. But I know so many Perl developers from that era. And it's almost a language that people don't talk about as much, uh, at least in kind of the blog posts and circles that I've been through, uh, except for the Ruby community. But it seems to have been massively influential. Oh, yeah. well, you know, if you were if you were doing um, web stuff, yeah, uh, back in in the the late '90s, early 2000s, you were pretty much either doing it in Perl or in PHP. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't CGI or isn't Common Gateway Interface or something like that? Yeah. Uh, that comes from Perl. And for those who don't know, it's a it's kind of like the rack of Perl. I guess is like a good analogy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a it was a, um, a protocol specification for how to communicate between a a server. Um, you know, how to communicate with a server using HTTP um, yeah. and get responses back. 
and um, yeah, it was it was what the internet was was built on was CGI. Yeah, you had your forms that would communicate with your your CGI servers, and they would receive that that request and return a response. And that's the way the internet was built. Yeah. I, hilariously, I've only used Perl to parse things and um, like do forms and other stuff like that. Like I found it very nice for doing that specific task and I've only used it in a very limited capacity, but I've actually never built a Perl site. <laughs> I've, only, yeah. I've only done it to basically rip through data. Like <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it. I'm not sure it was the best tool for the job, uh, but it was the one I had. So, <laughs> well, you know, I still use Perl sometimes, but the only thing that I use it for is um, one liners usually to, to oh, yeah. um, edit files. Yep. Yep. I, I use it as a glorified awk. <laughs> yeah not bad i mean i oh man i like awk but it that's a whole other it's <laughs> it's really hard to remember i can never remember that um yeah so how did you get from like so you're you're doing pearl the time you're you switch over to not switch over but you've discovered ruby and then this is yeah go ahead yeah so so basically what what ended up happening is that um in oh golly yeah, it was around 2002. I started doing um, independent freelance consulting, and okay. I was doing. I actually got hooked up with um, with some the one of the guys that ran the the startup that I worked for in San Jose had a business doing um, software for real estate companies, and um, I got hooked up with him working with him, but then. Um, he went off to do something else and I kind of took that over and it migrated and, and mutated into a business that was doing um, websites primarily for um, mutual fund companies. And I started doing all of them in Ruby. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, this was, you know, the first one, well, actually the first Ruby application that I wrote was a, a website for the Milwaukee Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> they they wanted a site to allow them to match college interns with companies looking for interns. So it was a job oh, site man. for internships. That's such a Chamber of Commerce thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I built, for the Milwaukee Chamber of Commerce, I built this entire application to, um, to do, you know, it was, it was a job search site. It was Monster yeah. for internships and yeah that was 2002 that i built that in ruby okay and then uh yeah you kind of started getting full into ruby right at this point oh yeah i was yeah everything i did was ruby i i i was building site after site after site in ruby yeah yeah and i've seen some of the work that you've done just going through your uh your github repo um, with like scrawls in like Iowa, where you you really kind of investigated some more technical and deeper parts of yes. it, just more complex so, parts. Yeah, Iowa was was so um, when I was first getting into really diving into the idea of using Ruby for all of this web work. You know, one of the first thoughts was, okay, so what exists in the Ruby ecosystem for building websites and doing that sort of thing, and at that point in time, the answer was not a lot. Oh, wow. 
you know, and what did exist was, you know, pretty basic. However, I tripped over this proof of concept that Avi Bryant had, had written. And, you know, some people might recognize that name. He's done a bunch of stuff in small talk. But before he really embraced small talk, you know, fully, he did some Ruby stuff and he did some interesting Ruby stuff. And he had done this proof of concept for a web framework. And he called it Iowa, Internet Objects for Web Applications. Oh, and, I didn't know that's what that stood for. <laughs> yeah. And when I started playing with it, I, it just it resonated with me. It was like, oh, this is fantastic. This makes so many things so easy. And so um, by the time that I had discovered it, he, it was basically abandoned. Um, you know, he had moved on from his proof of concepts and he, he had moved on. And so, you know, I, I contacted him and got permission to, to kind of take over development, development on it. And I hacked on it and turned it into something that I could use in production to, to build websites. And um, it was just so, it made so many things so easy that I started building everything with it. Interesting. And there's one thing in Iowa that I wasn't too sure about, I fear to ask you about, but what does it do? Uh, or like, how does it handle ORMs? You do have models so, a few times in here, but yeah, like, so, oh yeah, go so, ahead. Yeah. So when Iowa was originally a thing, basically it was, there wasn't, um, there weren't any ORMs for Ruby at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, as it happened, Avi had also um, written a proof of concept for an ORM for Ruby that he called Kansas. Um, <laughs> we had Iowa, so we may as well have another state, I guess. Yeah. And like I did with Iowa, I took it over and I turned it into something that I could use in production. And so um, basically, I used Kansas as the ORM. And Kansas was a, um, wasn't an active record type ORM. It it used the database as your source of truth and then mm -hmm. it mapped the database schema to um, the Ruby side. Okay. So, so rather than Ruby dictating what was in the database, the database dictated what was in Ruby. Interesting. But okay. um, from, from a usability standpoint, it worked great for all of the kind of stuff that I was doing. And it was built so that you, when you were, doing, you know, querying your, your database or whatever, you actually did it with Ruby code. And the Ruby code was turned into SQL that then was ran on the database. And so that's, that's basically the stack that I developed. I can't even tell you how many <laughs> dozens, yeah. dozens and dozens of sites and applications for for more than just financial companies, but mostly financial companies. Okay. Okay. Wow. It's a, it's a stack that I haven't heard much about, but it, it seems really cool. I'd yeah. love to. I was terrible gonna... at marketing. <laughs> <laughs> there is a fascinating thing where sometimes there's really great ideas and I believe really good software, but uh, getting the word out there is is hard. It's, it's hard to, to really, uh, to sell people on sometimes what are very good ideas. I've had to learn this just in my professional career that sometimes when I, I come to a meeting with an idea, it is worthwhile to do a, a longer preparation and, and come up with, uh, what will be perceived questions and, and be able to, you know, respond and, and kind of how to pitch something. It's, it's, it's a, oh, yeah. it's a skill. It, yeah. It's definitely a skill and it's a, it's a difficult skill. Yeah. It's a skill I'm still learning. 
<laughs> but yeah, yeah. but I, I was definitely, yeah, I was, I was terrible at the whole marketing and, um, you know, how, how do you, how do you generate excitement and then how do you cultivate that excitement in yeah. participation and, and stuff like that? I was, I was terrible at it. And so, you know, there were, there were some people that used Iowa, there were some people that used Kansas, but, um, not tons. Yeah. Um, I think this is something that like just the crystal community is like kind of is really stepping up into, but I think the, uh, fastest C slick as Ruby or slick as Ruby fastest C yeah. the ordering, I can't remember. It has been a, a good, um, kind of like guiding mantra for development, but, um, it doesn't really spark excitement. And I got excited with the language when I started using it, yeah. but it was not something that, um, the, the messaging pitch has, has been, I think people come from Ruby and they're like, well, it's faster, but like, I don't really need the speed or something like that. And then they, yeah. it, but, uh, I feel that the predictability, the consistency of code, the, the, uh, help from the compiler the clarity on what's happening. Like I just, there's a lot of things about it that I like, but it is, it is um, one of those things that um, is somewhat hard to boil down into a tagline. And I, I'm not really the developer happiness, man, Ruby nailed it. That is such a good pitch and it matches with the kind of ethos and the direction that they, that Ruby's had. Yeah. Well, you know, I was trying to remember exactly when it was that I first heard about crystal. It was at a conference mm-hmm. and I don't know if it was at Ruby Kaigi. Um, I haven't gone back and looked at the, the programs for the years that, that I was there. Um, so I don't know if it was like at Ruby Kaigi in 2016 or if maybe it was at RubyConf in 2015. I don't remember. But it was at a conference. And I remember thinking, oh, this sounds really cool. And then I went and looked at it and... It was, yeah, it was one of those things where it was fairly early still in the development. And when I went and looked at it, it was like, oh, this was, this is really cool, but there's not, I don't see an advantage here. There's not a lot I can do. It's still pretty, you know, it's pretty early. Yeah. And so I didn't actually, I mean, I kind of looked at it, but I didn't really give it much additional consideration at the time and it wasn't yeah. until this year that i came back to it oh really yeah. so you just came back to this year oh, yeah. well maybe we can uh jump forward a little bit to that we can definitely go back and chat a little bit more about your ruby days i, I i'm really interested in the some i think you started jumping on a little bit of ruby maintenance so i'd be really curious yeah. we'll, we'll chat about that maybe a little bit later but so you, you found crystal earlier this year um, you know, kind of like, how'd you find it? I'm really interested uh, in kind of an uh, an unprompted take, uh, you know, not seeding it too much of uh, what were your kind of thoughts and stuff like that coming into it? Well, so, you know, yeah. it was sort of just one of those things that um, it was almost random. You know, I, I, I tripped across a, a reference, might have been on Twitter, you know, talking about Crystal and I thought, huh, well, let's go take a look at it again. And you know, I went and I, I looked at it, and it seemed so much more evolved and so much more solid. And I started just playing with it. And I, I actually, what I did is, um, after I played with it a little bit and realized that it was just, um, it was so much more evolved from what it 
when it was you know, the first time I looked at it. Mm-hmm. And I started getting a feeling for just how fast code that is written in Crystal runs. I thought, hmm, I'm going to go try and rewrite some of my existing code in Crystal. And basically, I, I, it was surprisingly easy to do. Yeah. And the results were great. And I, I really enjoyed the experience of working in Crystal. You know, the, the, the typing is the single biggest hurdle to a Rubyus coming to Crystal. You know, there's so many things that just work as a Rubyus when you come to Crystal. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's lots of little, little places where, where you run into stumbling blocks. But, you know, the typing is like the, the single biggest hurdle. But once that starts to click... It flows just like Ruby. I mean, it's just, it, it's as, as easy to use. It's as pleasant to use. And I found when I was translating some of my, my Ruby code, I found some bugs that I didn't know existed because <laughs> of yep. the, the, the type handling stuff. And so it just, I got very, very good feelings from it and got very excited by it very quickly. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, my excitement level was high, but I was kind of sold on it. It's it's interesting to hear that the typing caught bugs and the typing was a barrier. And I think that that I I think that's a really good kind of insight and like something that I've kind of heard people talk a little bit around the edges, but yeah, I mean the, the coming from Ruby you definitely have to start thinking in types a little bit, but um the yeah. catching bugs happened for me too, and I love that part of it. Well, I mean, it's one of those things, the type inference in Crystal is really, you know, surprisingly good most of the time. So there's there's a lot of places where you can write your code just like Ruby. And in fact, you know, there are times when you can write your code just like Ruby, even when you shouldn't be writing it just like Ruby. <laughs> yep, yep. And it just works. But when you do run into those those places where you you, know, you need to focus on the typing, you know, when you have that Ruby mindset of you, know, you can throw anything and as long as it behaves properly, the code will just work. And now suddenly you have to think about, okay, is it a string? Is it a number? You know, what is it? You know, yeah, that, that, that mental shift, it, it can take a little bit of time, but you know, for me, it was, it was a couple of days of, you know, while I was working on translating my code that, yeah. that I was like repeatedly running into to these things that were, were frustrating until suddenly things started to click. And I was like, oh, okay, now we're good. I've got this. So it wasn't a huge hurdle, but it was a hurdle that existed. Yeah. Yeah. I totally hear what you're saying. There have been some moments in Crystal that I find the compiler super advanced and think it's interesting that it's, it's through some typing stuff. It's caught in, or it's caught certain things. There was one thing in like an if statement that like, you know, one, the one, uh, kind of block and an else, like something was being caught that couldn't have been called. And it was like really interesting how yeah. it can take union types. And I mean, it's not just like a type system in like the Java way or whatever. It's like almost like a type management system. Like it's just managing all the types for you. Mm-hmm. It is a, it is a type system, but some things have been super impressive. I really like the, what it's, um, what it's really corrected or caught for me. I find that I trust my crystal code more because of it, because I find it to be more predictable. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, that struck me 
you know, when I, when I started using Crystal was that for the most part, once your program compiles, it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, bar, barring the, the stupid logic errors and things like that, once it compiles, it works or it's very close to working. It's not yeah. like, okay, it ran, but everything was garbage. If it runs, you're probably pretty close to having something that is what you intended. And that was a really um, pleasant outcome. Yeah, I really like that. I I 100% agree with you. I think what's also really interesting is they've um, some of the people on the compiler have changed a little bit how the errors worked. And I think the lucky folks have, have uh, been able to make some really good error handling messages and the uh, they can kind of direct you or yeah. kind of interpret what you're doing and be like, Hey, you know, we see you did this, like check out this documentation or look at this, or this could be a problem. And it's, it's really fascinating using the compiler kind of like Elm to help you along, but also just like uh, there's some provability that what you call like a, a function or whatever will be there and stuff like that. It's, it's, I really, yeah, I'm a fan, yeah. but yeah, the vast majority <laughs> of the time when, with the exceptions, um, the, the error messages that the uh, compiler provides um, are very clear and specific, and you can just look at it and you know, here's my yep. here's my my mistake, and um, now I'm going to go go fix it. You know, every once in a while you run into things where, you know, where because of the way code compiles and everything, the error messages might not be completely clear, but it's not super common. Yeah. 100% agree. There was so coming as a Rubyist, um, there was uh, like one of my first projects I was building in Crystal. And I just find this funny at this point. But um, I had done what I thought was correct, like changed a controller and was sitting in the browser, like reloading and it wasn't updating. So like the code hadn't, you know, it was not showing the new code, right? I was sitting there like wondering what's going on, killed the server, restarted it, like all this kind of stuff. And I wasn't reading the compiler output and the compiler output was like, this is not correct. And it was, it was telling me the problem, but it's so interesting. There are certain flows just as a Ruby that are, I, I, I believe a little bit lazy on my part that <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you change something in a page breaks, you just kind of know, Oh, it's a thing I changed. And you just look at it and you have to try to figure it out. But with crystal, sometimes it just will be like this, you know, it won't compile be like, this is the problem. Yeah. It, it's interesting coming to crystal. So when you were building your first project in crystal, how did like, just how did your flows change? Like what, what did you kind of, um, you know, both maybe get from the language and also maybe uh, lost from coming from Ruby? Well, you know, you know, the first, the, the big change was just um, dealing with, well, the, the, the compiler step, the compilation step. And, realizing that you know one of the, well, I guess one of the aha moments was realizing that you know I don't have to actually compile my code to do most of what I used to do you know when ruby you you make a change you go run it you wait for something to break and then it's like okay that broke so you go make another change and you run it and you wait for something to break and so with crystal you because you know you have to to get the compilation part right first you can't do that in the same way. And yeah, I guess one of the, the, the compilation for Crystal sometimes is a little bit slowish if your, your program is very large. And mm -hmm. so one of the first things that I ran into was, was 
realizing that, oh, I don't actually need to compile my program. I just need to, you know, have the compiler check it for errors, which is vastly oh. faster than, than actually compiling it. Hmm. Because until all of the compiler errors are cleared, you know, it's not going to run anyway. So, so it doesn't need to go do all the code generation. I can, you know, see, so you, oh. yeah, so you can tell Crystal to, to do everything but the code generation. The code generation is what takes all the time. So, yeah. so then even, even a big piece of software, you can go check for compile errors in a couple of seconds. And oh, okay. once I had that sort of aha moment for that, then it really wasn't that much different than, than how I do Ruby. You know, I huh. go work on something, then I go check. Okay. What's still breaking. Okay. Go work on some stuff and then go check what's still breaking until I get to the point where the compiler doesn't give me any errors. And then at that point in time, let's actually, you know, fully compile it and run it and see what happens. I am super into that idea. How'd you do that? Like, I mean, what's your process? I'm, I'm assuming the CLI has some there, ability. There's a no code gen. There's, it's just that simple. There's a no code. Gen oh my file. gosh. Yeah. Okay. Oh man. All right. Well, I'm definitely going <laughs> to yeah. update my process to use that. So what was, uh, what was kind of your first project? What was your, um, you know, kind of, uh, your, onboarding experience as it were into the language well so so i have a um a thing that i wrote in, in ruby a bunch of years ago so so actually you know to going back to to iowa and the fact that i was using iowa for all of these um, production web applications and i got this this idea around um i don't know 2007 2008 that it would be really nice if I had a, a load balancer that would work with Iowa. And the thing about Iowa is that um, it kept track of session information server-side, hmm. which there's definitely some pros and cons there. One of the pros is that the web framework then made it stupid easy to deal with, you know, forms and params and, and all that stuff. Basically, you didn't have to worry about it. It just worked. Mm -hmm. But the con is that if you have, say, multiple servers, you have to make sure that all of the requests for a given session always end up back with the same process mm -hmm. because that's where your session lives. And so I wrote a, um, a load balancing reverse proxy in Ruby for, for Iowa. And then I got, you know, the other the other thing that, that you deal with, of course, is logs. And, you know, if you have application uh, server processes running in multiple places on multiple you know, servers, multiple instances, and you have to debug something, it's a real pain to have to tell that SSH into, yep. you know, umpteen different machines and go look through your logs and try and figure out, all right, where, which log file has the errors that I'm looking for to figure out my problem. And so I wanted a way to, to just aggregate all my logs in one place that was, that was not negatively impacting the performance of the application. And so I wrote a, um, a log aggregator that was a very fast asynchronous log aggregator in Ruby. And used these things in production forever. I mean, there's, there's still dozens of, of sites that I built <laughs> that are using these things in production. Nobody knows. They just, they sit there and they run and they work. Is this uh, an logger? Analogger, yep. Analogger, oh, okay. Yep, asynchronous yeah. logger. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, 
Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so I thought, you know what? Why don't I try rewriting, um, you know, rewriting Analogger in Crystal? And so that was the first, I guess, real project is just working through rewriting that in Crystal. Okay. And this is not like a simple, simple project. That, I mean, there were. You know, you're you're doing kind of fault tolerance. You're storing things uh, locally if you can yeah. to recover. I mean, can you yeah. go over some of the challenges in, in in both in this project and and how like how Crystal might have done well or not done well and yeah. kind of solving? This? Yeah. So I mean, this this was you know one of the things where Crystal helped me discover that there are some bugs in the Ruby side and they aren't, <laughs> they aren't serious bugs because like I'd never tripped over them in actual production, but um, I discovered that they existed. So yeah, I mean, basically the idea with Analogger is that you have a, a central server that you know aggregates logs, and you can have n clients that all connect to it and um, feed logs to it. And it it was written using Event Machine, so that oh. it, everything runs in an event loop. Since it's you know dealing with logs is all I/O, you know event-based processing is extremely fast with things that are, are IO bound. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Analogger, you know, at its core, it's, it's really a fairly simple thing. Receive messages, figure out where they need to go, you know, which bucket they need to be dumped into and dump them into that bucket. Mm-hmm. And then on the client side, there's a little bit of sophistication there because I wanted it to be fault tolerant to, the server going down or network failures or something like that. And so on the client side, it will, if, if it loses contact with its server, it will spool all of those logging messages um, locally. And then when it, it <laughs> gets uh, access again, it will start unspooling them, but yep, it, keep, yep. it keeps the chronological order. So even while um, it's unspooling them off of the file system, new logging messages don't go to the analogger server before all of the old stuff is unspooled off the file system so that you can maintain that chronological order of delivery. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, that that's sort of it in a nutshell. And, you know, it's one of those, those things that is, you know, in, in production usage, it, it just hums along and it just works and you know Ruby gets gets knocks for being slow, but Analogger, you know, in using Event Machine, even on older hardware, it had absolutely no problem accepting more logs than you could actually send over your your Ethernet connection. I mean, it would completely saturate your connection and still be able to handle the the load. So performance wise, okay. it was great. That is super cool, and I feel like. Um, this kind of dovetails really well into Minion because yeah, it seems like Minion has a lot of the same kind of concepts. Can, can yeah. you kind of fill us in on Minion? So, yeah. And, and so Minion's kind of, I guess it's um, maybe a little bit less secret now after this podcast. But, um, so <laughs> I, I, I work for um, Josh Software now, which is a, a software consultancy uh, service company. And actually, like the week that I was hired they were doing a, a hackathon and, and the, the basic, the basic concept of the hackathon was for teams of people to get together and 
come up with with something, whether it was a, a product pitch or an actual product, come up with something that could be demoed. And um, then Josh would, would you know, if, if these things were compelling enough, you know, see if, if some of those things could actually get some, some resources to be built. And so I jumped onto a team with another guy who, someone that I actually used to work with at Engineard, who was also working for Josh. Mm-hmm. Uh, J. Austin Huey, he had a, a idea for a product that he had had in his head for a long time. And basically um, it was, it, it's a tool for, for managing servers. It's a tool for making certain DevOps things easier, basically. And so I, I kind of jumped onto that and I did all of the, for, for the hackathon, I did the whole UI layer. I, I wrote a, a UI uh, in React to um, demo what, what it might look like, basically. And um, the end result of, of the hackathon was um, the that this looked compelling and this looked interesting. And um, basically, why don't you go see if you can figure out a, a plan to deliver an MVP and start working on it? And so, you know, sort of the, the nutshell version is that um, I've spent, well, most of my time between then and now working on it. And yeah, it started out literally it's because I had done the um the crystal version of, of Analogger. Yeah, I realized that, oh hey, you know, what I already wrote here delivers kind of a core of the capabilities. You know, I I, I forked off of that and worked on using that to build a whole client server structure for you know, Basically, what the minions are is is it's a an agent that lives out on your your server, your instance, you know, whatever whatever you want to to manage and monitor, and it will collect metrics, it'll collect um, logs, and it will stream them all back to the minion server. But then it also has a um, a management component where it can uh, receive commands and um, things like that from the server back to back to your instances so that you can do management type stuff all off of a, a UI or a CLI centrally. And so it's a way just of aggregating logs and metrics on your systems into a central place and then do management back to those systems from that central place all encrypted over TLS and, and secure. Yeah. And that's basically what it is. And so right now we're hammering to finish up an MVP of it. It's super cool. I, uh, it's, it's just like analog or plus plus. It's got a lot yeah. of really cool ideas in there. Um, including, uh, it, it has somewhat it, is the, I noticed there were some things about networks and some things about server failures. Like yeah. it seems yeah. way more fault tolerant. Is it more fault, fault tolerant than analogger? Well, so it, it's basically the same the same concepts of fault tolerance. So, um, you know, let let's say you have some appliance that is in a lab somewhere, or whatever. You have some appliance sitting somewhere, and you need to monitor it. Mm-hmm. But it may be on an internet connection that is unreliable. 
So what the agent will do is it'll sit there and it'll collect all of its its metrics, all of the, you know, whatever telemetry it's been told to collect, whatever logs it's been told to collect, it'll collect them all and it'll stream them to the to the central server. If that unreliable internet connection goes down, then it starts spooling them locally. And okay. hmm. you know, then whenever that connection comes back up, it'll unload them back to the server seamlessly, you know, so you don't you don't notice anything, you know, that it all just runs. Uh, nothing changes from an operational point of view. It's just that when that internet come, <clears throat> excuse me, internet connection comes back, the data goes back up to the server, and um, if it goes away again, no worries. We'll just start spooling locally again until it comes back again. Okay. There's like a few different things that I'm like really interested about. So, what what about the uh, like? Is this similar? I guess the the REPL, the interactive REPL, is it like a multi SSH session or is there something more advanced? Like so, um, yeah. So so the the initial <clears throat> the initial um, product is is not a multi SSH just because um, that has some interesting issues um, that have to be solved that are out of scope for basically the time frame that I have to develop this in. Got it. So one, one of the issues, just by the way, you know, Crystal doesn't have, as far as I, I've been able to, to discern, any sort of good PTY implementation. So oh, in, in order to do something like where you set up an interactive, you know, multi-SSH type of thing, you want to be able to run PTY so that you can have, you know, what looks to the remote system, like a shell with all of the, the resources that are available, mm-hmm. but that's not available. And I looked at it and was like, okay, I don't have time to write this. So what it does is it manages the, the it has a command queue basically. So let's say you have you know some set of servers and you want to issue a command to all of them. Yep. You from from the UI point of view, you go and and there's various ways that you can query the servers and you can select the set that you want because servers can be tagged with various various tags that describe what they're for, what they're doing, etc. And so, in some way, you select the set of servers that you want to act on, and then you provide a command. And what happens is that the command goes into a Postgres database and. Um, yep. We're actually using Postgres then as also as a messaging bus using, oh, so? using the notification capabilities in Postgres. Oh man, I've wanted to try that out. I've yeah. yet to actually try that feature, but I keep on reading about it. <laughs> like, it just, it I haven't found really well. an excuse to use it. Okay. Yeah, it works really That's well. Awesome. That's good to basic, hear. Yeah. So basically what happens is, you know, all the data goes into the database and then um, the, the minion stream server just has a notification channel with the database. And when oh. that notification goes out, you know, it triggers that, that notification to go back down to the stream server. And there's, you know, because of the beautiful way that fibers work with Crystal, you know, that notification is, is picked up and using, using channels, basically. Interesting. There's, there's a signal that goes out internally that says, okay, go pull the list of servers and dispatch the command to all of them. And All right. Um, so the commands fire out to however many servers there are, and there's there's essentially a fiber for each one that then waits for it to finish, collects all of the the standard out and standard error, 
and queues it back into the database. And it also does um, deduplication essentially of the output. So if everything returns the same output, you're only going to get like one record in the database. And all of the, the, the way the data structure is set up for the command output, if it's all the same, it's all going to point to that one record so you don't duplicate data. But then if it diverges, you know, you get more messages Got back, it. diverge the data, then it'll make new ones. That's fascinating. I love that. That's, that is super cool. I really want to read more about that. I'll have to like dig through it a little bit. Um, it is uh, open source, at least through what I've been looking at. So, or it's public so, on GitHub. Yeah, right now, parts of it are open source and parts of it aren't. Okay. So yeah, there's a, there's a, a library of just sort of common things that are shared between the agent and the server that is open yep. source and the agent is open source. The server is not currently open source. That makes sense. If that's sort of a, a business decision, whether or not it um, sure. ends up being open source or not, but, but the other parts are open source right now. Yeah. That makes sense. And then you are uh, talking about this a little bit. You, I noticed that there was a, um, a shard you chose. I keep on wanting to say gem. <laughs> I, I, I totally know what I'm talking about, but uh, at the same time, like gem just comes so quickly to my to my mouth. But um, you're using concurrent, which is a was a, which is a crystal shard that prov- that uses mostly fibers and channels under the hood, but provides a really good interface for concurrency. Yeah. It is super awesome. It's super easy. Um, I actually think if someone's just starting out, it's a, it's a really good starter point. Although. The crystal concurrent light, like the the tools in crystal, I I, I enjoy using. Um, but uh, talking about some of the mutex or some of the, the the fibers and some of the things you did, is is any of that kind of a, a byproduct of like? Are you using concurrent the concurrent uh, crystal a lot for that? And um, so there's actually, there's actually just um, one piece of of concurrent that I'm I'm using. Oh yeah, so so concurrent has. Um, you know, it's it's got like a bunch of different different little functions that are built into the library, and um, you know, one of the functions allows you to to parallelize stream processing and things like that um, mm-hmm. very easily. The syntax is is just beautifully simple, and so that's the bit that that I'm using. Oh, okay, and all right, all right, that's really interesting. And then um, there were some interesting choices that I just wanted to talk to you about, especially after talking about uh, Kansas. Mm-hmm. You you are uh, are you planning on on using an ORM or what? What was your what was your thoughts around that? It seems like it was kind of developed a little differently. Um, yeah, I'm just so, kind of curious. Yeah, so right now I'm not using an ORM, um, mostly because um, it was not. It's one of those things that it's not super clear to me. I've done some research into the Crystal ORMs, um, but it's not super clear to me what the right decision is. I know. It's not it, crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so yeah. the database is Postgres. And yep. um, so we're using some Postgres capabilities like um, JSON columns and TS vectors for full, set, full text um, stuff. Oh, I did yeah, and so you know, it it's an easy thing to use an ORM if you're just sort of doing vanilla queries, vanilla inserts, that sort of thing. But when you start getting into things like you know doing TS queries for full text stuff, yeah, you know that that sort of narrows your scope a lot. And there are a couple of ORMs for Crystal that that well, Clear supports it. I love Clear; it's super fun. <laughs> and and 
I think Avram supports it too, but I'm not 100% sure. But Claire definitely does. But but mostly it was just one of those things where the database stuff, yeah, I'm not afraid of writing SQL. <laughs> and it's good to the know. database stuff is really, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change a lot. So I didn't see a lot of benefit in even worrying about an ORM. I'll just write some SQL and, and it's all good. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I have stepped up my uh, SQL game a lot in the past year. But um, I, I don't know, I, I touched school kind of in the beginning of my career, stopped for a really long time, because um, active record just made it so easy. But um, I've definitely I've worked with people on varying ends of the spectrum. I've worked with people that believe SQL will become obsolete and interfaces over it will overtake it. And then I've worked with people, I've actually worked with a few people that believe that ORM should not be necessary in any application and just writing all the your SQL and code will you know, kind of, um, you know, is not, it's, it's an interesting where ORMs fit. You've written one or you've, you've, you know, taken over one. So it is an interesting spot. And for, for me, one of the things, ORMs make, make a lot of things easier when you're writing code. I mean, even if, if you're adept at, at using SQL, you know, ORMs still generally make it easier, but if you start getting into you know complex queries and things like that, um, ORMs can also make things vastly slower, depending upon yeah. what you're dealing with. Have you seen a performance difference between Active Record and Avram? And everything in Crystal is faster. I mean, yes, yeah, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like, you know, I was going to give you an example. Yeah, I was working Go on a, an application last year where um, the front end and React backend was rails mm-hmm. and the application had to load a whole bunch of data from from the database that you know both there was a large volume of data and the data had to be you know you were being joining data from multiple tables okay and so the original um, implementation of all of this was utilizing active record and so active record would go pull all this data in and then you would do Ruby stuff to construct the actual shape of the records that you want to pass off to your React front end, you know, dump it as JSON and send it up. Mm-hmm. Problem was that for a large data set, this took like two minutes, which is not viable when you're talking about web application responsiveness. Yeah, generally browsers time out by then. <laughs> so what I ended up doing, we were using Postgres you know, there too, is Postgres can generate JSON natively. And so instead of using active oh. record, I rewrote the, the query. And, and I mean, this resulted in, you know, a page and a half of just ugly, hard to read SQL. But what took two minutes going through active record and Ruby to spit the JSON back to, to React, if I let Postgres do it all, it took like 300 milliseconds. Whoa, that's fast. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, that was a case where it was a profound win to go back to the database, let the database do what the database is good at, and just bite the bullet, deal with the, the really hideously ugly, hard to wrap your brain around in one go chunk of SQL, but write it, develop it, and then let the database do what it's good at. Yeah, there is something about the change and kind of like mindset I've had since the Rails, like since I was 
you know, exclusively Rails, which is that the database the database has a lot of really good functionality and a lot of really good like uh, you know features to use. And like it, it's I used to do everything in Ruby validations and Ruby, all this other stuff. And you knew there were like uniqueness to know, you know, there was, there was like some like, okay, well in that edge case kind of thing, but working more and more with the database, it, it, uh, it really does empower a lot of features and it, it makes you think about things differently. It, it gives you more tools in your toolbox and it allows for some things that just couldn't be done before. And uh, there's both performance gains, like what you're talking about, but the the deeper I get into databases, the more I realize that a a bunch of functionalities and features kind of are derived from the database. Yeah. Yeah. And there's things that that databases, databases are good at. And, you know, like everything else, you're, you're balancing pros and cons, you're trading off, you know, one aspect versus another. And when you're using an ORM, you know, most of the time you're using an ORM because as a programmer, it makes it faster to to write the code and to get something that works. And in a lot of cases, the, the performance difference is not significant enough to, to care about. It gets lost in the noise. But you know, whether it's it's performance related or it's capability related, sometimes there are just things that make more sense to sacrifice a little bit of that programmer um, immediate productivity for long-term program productivity. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I guess I have a question for you, which is, if an ORM achieved the feature set that you need for the Minion server, would an ORM be the right choice? Like, is it something where yeah. it's... It I mean, be? yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, if if the feature set was there and and using the ORM didn't didn't introduce other complexities, mm-hmm. then, you know, absolutely, it would be a, a good choice. You know, it's, it's again, it, it's just that, that balancing of, yeah. you know, competing interests. And, you know, if, if, if an ORM makes it easier for me to write the code and it still delivers all the features and it still delivers all the per- performance, then um, at that point, there's no downside. And you were saying with Kansas that the ORM was kind of database up that yes. like it would. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Avram has a sanitizing checker, but it doesn't necessarily, I wouldn't call it like database up. I wonder if ORMs in, you know, in any language, but specifically thinking about crystal, you know, if you could parse uh, some of the structure SQL and, and create, something akin to that in crystal, just making sure that everything is derived from the bottom up. I'm not really sure that that I haven't really seen that in other ORMs, but I haven't seen Kansas either. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah I mean, and I, I think, you know, the way Kansas worked is not the way most ORMs worked. I mean, most, most, All right. most of the, I mean, as far as just um, philosophically, you know, ORMs all take, seem to take the point of view that um, the code defines the database and so you know whatever whatever your um your classes are or you know however the the orm is working um that defines the structure for the database and yeah kansas just it did it the opposite way it said okay let's go look at the database and Mm -hmm. let's take that structure and let's map that back to ruby objects 
That's super fascinating. I'm definitely gonna have to go hunt that down and take some, you know, take a good look at it. <laughs> I feel like we missed a lot of your contributions to Ruby. And um, I think that like, it'd be really good to, to get you back <laughs> on sometime and go through some of that. I also just would love to hear, you know, more about your ideas about the um, kind of the ORM space and, and kind of the crystal space in general, possibly even about, you know, what Iowa would look like um, in the crystal space and, and kind of web servers and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully if, if we get you back, it'll be after you've uh, deployed minions so we can hear kind of your war stories. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, minion is one of those things that, you know, we've got a fairly aggressive timeline on it to, to get an MVP delivered. But, um, you know, hopefully that will be, you know, be coming together into a full fledged product here pretty soon. You know, my, my time, Actually, right now is being spent largely uh, writing React um, to do all the all of the UI work for the front end because um, the the, the back end side with with Crystal and the stream server and the agent and everything that's all working great. And so now we just have to get a UI that um, you know makes it easy for people to to utilize all those capabilities. Awesome, yeah. React is is definitely taking over the space. Um, we'll have to chat more about that that later if people want to find you um online where can they find you so i'm wy haynes everywhere okay yep literally you know <laughs> you know it was one of those things that back when when you know i was thinking okay what what handles should i use on like twitter and, and things like that you know there are a few other kirk haynes's in the world or a few other k haynes's in the world but Wyoming Haynes, well, that's unique. So I'm W.Y. Haynes on GitHub. I'm W.Y. Haynes on Twitter. I'm W.Y. Haynes everywhere. Awesome. And is there any projects that you would, uh, maybe if, if there are people able to contribute that you would like to shout out? Gosh, I haven't even really thought about that that much. You know, I think that at a point in the not too distant future, when when Minion has reached full MVP status, it might be something that's interesting for people who are interested in Crystal to take a look at and improve. Because while I've been deep into you know, doing everything in Crystal here for the last month and a half, it's still my first real, real, real product in Crystal. And so I know that there's things that I did that were stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, other than that, you know, as far as just like sort of wish list type things, one of the things that I've wanted to do for years is to take Iowa and um, rewrite it, basically, given all of the developments that have happened in the last almost 20 years of Ruby. I still think that it's a it's an interesting web framework that, that um, makes a lot of things really, really simple. And awesome. I, I've written lots of rail stuff in my career but um every time i'm writing rail stuff I, i'm always thinking gosh this would be so much easier if i were using iowa <laughs> yep so, yeah awesome well for those who are looking those are both on github uh, or will be and are um and uh, i am uh jack thorne with chicago crystal i'm generally one two three on the internet or w-o-n-t-r-u-e-f-r-e-e and uh, Chicago Crystal is uh, is on um, 
Twitter right now at Twitter, uh, Chicago underscore crystal. And we are trying to, um, get the YouTube, uh, name for it. I think we've only had two or three talks, um, uh, upload to YouTube, but we're almost to the point where we can, uh, claim the name on YouTube. So if you can subscribe, that'd be awesome. And, uh, thank you for listening to Chicago crystal and we will be here and, uh, please come back soon. A big thank you to our producer, Christy Flores, who edits these podcasts and our DJ, Bill Wesley, who provides the tracks and samples for these episodes. This was an episode of Chicago Crystal, building community and getting stuff made in our favorite language. We'll see you soon.